This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Wasn't last Sunday fantastic? I tell you, I've been singing with the choir, uh, which has been fantastic for me. I'm on sabbatical this year, thank you, Lord. Otherwise, I uh, normally wouldn't be able to. So it was a joy to be front and center singing with these people, uh, hearing that pipe organ roar out praise to our risen Lord, the incense, the bells, you all singing your hearts out in praise to the risen Lord. It was beautiful and glorious. And to see that Christ candle coming in at the vigil, I'll talk more about that in my sermon. But it was it was glorious, I keep saying that, and I'm riding the wave, as you can tell. But the great thing about Easter is it's not just a day, it's a season. And in these 40 days of Easter tide, we don't move on from Easter to back to our workaday lives. We stay here and remain with the disciples as Jesus remained with them for 40 days meditating upon the significance of his resurrection. And that's what we're called to do in Eastertide, and that's what we're called to do today, to ask what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. What is its significance 2,000 years after the fact for we who live here and now on planet Earth in the 21st century? Friends, there is no more important question that we can ask ourselves today than this question what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. Now, according to recent figures, over 2 billion people on our planet believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, including, I would assume, most of us here. But my suspicion is that for many Christians, the resurrection is mainly an event that occurred in the distant past, and its main significance for us is our hope it gives us for our own resurrection in the future. Now, this is a good and beautiful hope and we've staked our lives upon it, and we affirm that hope every Sunday in our confession of the Nicene Creed. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Praise God. But was hope in their resurrection from the dead the first thing in the minds of the apostles when they witnessed Jesus' resurrection? Clearly, that was an implication. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, by his great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thanks be to God. However, if we look closely at our readings for this morning, this second Sunday of Eastertide, we'll see that the hope of the resurrection, while present, is not the primary concern of the apostles or these passages. Rather, their focus is on who Jesus is revealed to be and by his resurrection, and who we are called to be in light of it. Who Jesus is revealed by his resurrection to be, and who we are called to be in light of it. Now, our gospel and epistle passages this morning are both written by St. John, which is important. And we see two encounters with the resurrected Jesus. One by the apostle Thomas, shortly after the resurrection, and one by John himself, much later in life, in exile on the island of Patmos. In the first encounter, we see a risen Jesus who looks very much like he did before his crucifixion and death, 
except he has wounds in his hand and in his side. In the second encounter, we see a very different Jesus, an ascended, reigning, and glorified Jesus, whose appearance fills us with wonder and awe and even fear. At first glance, these two appearances of our Lord seem to have little in common, but as we look at our gospel passage more closely, we come to see that they are both bearing witness to the same reality, and that reality is captured in the eternal words proclaimed by the Apostle Thomas, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas has been unfairly labeled Doubting Thomas and is often held up as an ancient example of a modern skeptic. But nothing could be further from the truth. In John 11, when Jesus announces that he will go to raise Lazarus from the dead, even though the Jewish authorities are seeking to kill him, it's Thomas who says, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas loves and believes in Jesus. And like the rest of the apostles, he is devastated by Jesus' death. What's more, it's not as if the other apostles somehow came to believe without physical evidence. Jesus had already appeared to them. No, Thomas is not a skeptic. He is a disillusioned and broken-hearted believer. He can't bring himself to hope on someone else's word that it might be true. He needs to see Jesus for himself. Tradition tells us that Thomas's subsequent passion to spread the good news of Jesus' resurrection took him all the way to South India, where Christians today still trace their lineage all the way back to the Apostle Thomas. No, the point of this passage is not Thomas's unbelief. It is his belief. Thomas gets it. Thomas understands the significance of what he is seeing, that through his resurrection, Jesus is revealed as both Lord and God. Note that Thomas is the only apostle that John records speaking to Jesus here. As such, Thomas speaks for all the apostles. And Jesus makes it clear that Thomas's confession should be our confession. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Through the words of Thomas, John is holding up for the whole church to see and for the whole world to see what it means that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. It means that he is Lord, and it means that he is God. But what did this mean to the apostles? What did it mean to proclaim Jesus as Lord and God in Roman-occupied first-century Israel? We don't have to look very far for the answer. Just a few chapters earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate is deeply conflicted about what to do about Jesus. Jewish authorities want Jesus put to death because he claimed to be the Son of God. But this only makes Pilate more inclined to let him go. What convinces Pilate to have Jesus killed is the claim that Jesus was a king, king of the Jews. Remember what the Jewish leaders said to Pilate? If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against Caesar. In first century Roman-occupied Israel, to proclaim Jesus as God was an offense against the Jewish religious leaders. But to proclaim Jesus as Lord was to challenge the empire. We have no king but Caesar, said the Jewish leaders to Pilate. 
But that is not what Thomas says, and it is not what the early Christians said. They had no king but Jesus, their Lord and their God. Friends, this I would put to you is how we must understand Thomas's words this morning. To proclaim Jesus as Lord and God is not a vague religious sentiment. It is a declaration of his divinity and his authority over all other worldly authority. And St. John knows exactly what he's doing in emphasizing these words. Now, most scholars acknowledge that the Gospel of John was the last gospel to be written. And one of their reasons lies in these words of Thomas themselves. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, as we see in our passage from Revelation, and we believe that he died there. And he was exiled under the reign of the emperor Domitian, who ruled the Roman Empire from 81 to 96 AD. Now, Domitian was a ruthless autocrat who suppressed the power of the Roman Senate and set himself up as a supreme authority and defender of the greatness of Rome. He promoted traditional Roman religion and revived the worship of the Roman emperor as a deity, which was convenient for him because he was the emperor. And he persecuted religious minorities, of course, including Christians. But to top it all off, we're told that he took to himself a title, the title Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. For any Christian reading Thomas's words at the end of the first century, the implication would be clear. Caesar is not Lord and God. Only Jesus is Lord and God. Well, it's with this understanding that I think we can better appreciate what we see in Revelation chapter 1. Here we have John's vision of the risen, ascended, and reigning Jesus Christ, who is both Lord and God. In his vision, John beholds a glorified Jesus who appears like a son of man, but much more than just a man. He is dressed in a robe with a golden sash across his chest. His eyes blaze with fire. His face shines bright as the sun. His feet glow like burnished bronze, and his voice is like the sound of rushing water. And John, in response, falls flat on his face. Well, what are we to make of this? Jesus' appearance here is identical to a mysterious figure that appears in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, in response to Daniel's prayers, a man appears to him clothed in linen with a belt of gold around his waist. His face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the roar of a multitude. This man comes to Daniel directly from God in answer to Daniel's prayers. Now, in John's vision, something new is added. John, son of man, also has hair as white as snow or wool. Well, what could that mean? The answer is also found in the book of Daniel. In an earlier vision, Daniel beholds God as the ancient of days, seated on a heavenly throne with hair as white as wool. One like a son of man is brought before this ancient of days who grants him dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The remarkable thing we see in John's vision is that these two figures have now become one. The son of man is also the ancient of days. N.T. Wright puts it like this. In Daniel's vision, the ancient of days takes his seat in heaven and one like a son of man is enthroned alongside him. Now in John's vision, 
These two pictures have merged. When we're looking at Jesus, we look straight through him to the Father himself. Well, in case we weren't clear about it before, the meaning is pretty hard to miss now. The exalted and glorified Jesus is nothing less than God. Yes, he is the Son of Man, but he is also the Ancient of Days. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is God. But in John's vision, Jesus is also Lord. He is Lord over his church. We see him standing in the middle of seven golden lampstands, which represent the churches of God. In his right hand are seven stars, which represent the angels of those churches. And he is Lord over the nations. We see that out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword, which signifies kingly authority and judgment. And earlier in Revelation 1, John describes Jesus as ruler of the kings of the earth. Finally, he is Lord even over death and the grave. We hear these words from Jesus himself, I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The meaning of John's vision is clear, and it would have been crystal clear to the early Christians. Because Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over the church. He is Lord over the nations. He is Lord over death itself. And St. Paul sums it up for us in these words. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Friends, this is what Thomas's words signify, both for the apostles and for us today. Well, what are their implications for how we live? What does it mean to bend our knee to Jesus? This brings us to our reading from Acts. Here we find the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit, teaching and healing in the name of Jesus. The Jewish authorities summoned them and challenged them. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. But the apostles answer, Our God has exalted Jesus to his right hand. We must obey God rather than any human authority. The implication of today's scriptures are clear, both for the first Christians and for us. Jesus is our Lord and God, and we who follow him are called to worship and obey him above all human authority. The resurrection of Jesus Christ reveals who he is, and in its light we see who we are called to be. How then shall we live today on planet Earth in the 21st century in light of Jesus' resurrection, in light of the fact that he is our Lord and our God? What does it mean to bend our knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? And here it gets a little messy. The first and most obvious implication is that Jesus has no rival. Just as he has been exalted over all power and authority in this world, so we are called to exalt and obey him over all human power and authority in our lives, both as individuals and as his church. What are the authorities we encounter in our world that compete with Jesus' authority? To what powers in our world are we tempted to bend the knee instead of bending it to Jesus? 
Well, just as we see in the first century, an obvious challenge we face in every age of the church is how to square our political allegiances with our ultimate allegiance to Jesus. In some parts of the world today, Christians live under political regimes very much like that of the emperor Domitian. These regimes oppress and persecute the church, and Christians face the fearful question of what it means to obey Jesus over their authority. But we here in America have our own political temptations as well. Both of our political parties want us to embrace their point of view. Both want us to believe that the other side is somehow the enemy. Both want us to toe their party line. But does the fact that Jesus is Lord permit us to think this way? If Jesus is above all human authority, then obedience to him should temper our allegiance to any political party and citizenship in his kingdom should come before our allegiance to any nation. Now, don't get me wrong, I am a son of the American West and I love our country, but Jesus is my Lord and no one else, and he is our Lord, and he should be the starting point and standard for all our political allegiances. But as challenging as the question of political authority is, there are structures of cultural authority in our world that pose even greater challenges. These are immensely powerful forces that seek to press us into their own image rather than the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure we can think of many, but I'm just going to name a couple. I think the most prominent cultural authority that I see in our world today is social media. These continually bombard us with culturally sanctioned ideas of what the good life should be, what it means to be a good person, ideas that are often directly opposed to Jesus Christ. At their center is the modern exaltation of the self above all other goods. They tell us that we are the most important people in the world. They tell us that we must always be happy, always be beautiful, always be hip, always be amazing. They tell us that unless we're completely fulfilled in our relationships, our sex lives, our jobs, our lifestyle, then something has gone horribly wrong and we must cut all ties and move on. And the social pressure to capitulate to this worship of the self is immense and unrelenting. And it is directly opposed to the call of Jesus Christ to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And it is unsustainable for those who can't measure up or at least appear to measure up are crushed by it. And the result is often anxiety, self-hatred, and despair. Of course, the other option is escape, what some have called a flight from reality in American culture. Wearied and stressed by our hyper-modern lives, we're offered countless ways to distract ourselves, to forget our troubles, to numb out and withdraw. We soothe our frayed nerves by immersing ourselves in endless shows, online shopping, pornography, video games, the list goes on all the while withdrawing from the actual world that God has made, from meaningful human relationships, and from our own embodied existence. Now, these are just a couple of examples of vast forces that vie for our loyalty, that vie for Jesus' authority in our world today. 
And I have no doubt that there are others equally challenging that we could uh, sort out here if we had the time. But whatever these are, the question is this, are we going to grant them authority or are we going to acknowledge Jesus as our Lord and our God? Well, one sure way to know which authorities compete for our loyalty is to consider what we actually do with our time and resources. Shockingly novel idea. What habits and behaviors actually dictate the shape of our lives? Do those habits increase in us the love of God and our neighbor? Do they bear witness that Jesus is Lord? If so, praise God. If not, what do we need to change? What are we captive to? What do we need to repent of? What do we need to seek the Lord's power to free us from? And what Christ-shaped habits and relationships should we be cultivating in their place? Now, obviously, this is far easier said than done, and I'm the first to admit that I struggle as much as the next person. The power these worldly authorities have is the power to play upon our fear, and they are extremely good at it. They want us to numb out rather than stay engaged. They want us to believe that if we don't play by their rules, we will lose our security or lose our freedom, possibly lose our happiness, our relationships, possibly our self-worth in the eyes of others, etc., etc. And it's that fear that makes us grasp after these things rather than to trust in God. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he is powerful to help those who call upon his name. He wants to free us from captivity to ourselves. He wants to give us his life, and he wants to liberate us from the false promises that the world holds out to us. And he's given us the means to find that freedom in him. First of all, he's given us his Holy Spirit. As the apostle tells us, Jesus graciously gives the Spirit to those who seek to follow him. The Spirit works patiently in our lives, both to show us ways of thinking and living that need to change and to give us the courage and strength to change them. The Christian life is not a sprint. It is a long-distance race, as Eugene Peterson says. It's a long obedience in the same direction, and the Holy Spirit works patiently to move us in that direction. But secondly, Jesus has given us each other. Jesus has given us to one another as his body, the church. He's made us into a new community in him. He's called us together to love one another, to encourage and support one another in our common life in Christ, to be a community of love that bears witness to him as our Lord and our God. If you haven't attended Easter Vigil before, I strongly encourage you to consider attending next year. It had been a few years for me, and I'd forgotten just how powerful that service is. It begins in darkness, darkness that signifies the darkness of death, of a world broken and cut off from God. But then the priest enters, bearing the Christ candle, and we see it far off in the darkness, shining brightly. Then, person by person, each one's candle is lit, and soon the whole nave is filled with the light 
of Christ. Thanks be to God. Friends, this is what we are called to be for one another. We are to share Christ's light and life with each other, to illumine the darkness in one another's lives, and together to illumine the darkness of the world in which we live. Let us love one another as Jesus has loved us. We are not alone in this. Well, finally, of course, Jesus gives us himself. He gives us his grace. He gives us his mercy. He comes to us time and again in our worship and in the bread and the wine. He comes to us in our fear and in our grasping. He lays his mighty hand of love on our trembling shoulders, and he tells us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Living One. I was dead and see, I am alive forevermore. Well, how else can we respond to him but say, my Lord and my God. Amen.